So I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but it's October. How many of you knew it was October? Some of you didn't raise your hand there. It's kind of snuck up upon me and realized that it, October is not only here, it's fleeting. It's leaving. In fact, in two weeks from now, October is done and we're in November. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing October things, right? There are October things you do. You have bonfires and you, we're getting ready to go trick-or-treating at the end of the month. And we do October things. And yesterday, a group of us from uh, church, our children's ministry, went to Honeysuckle Hill Farm. Now, I, Susan and I realized we were there yesterday. We have been eight years in a row, sometimes multiple times a year with various field trips to Honeysuckle Hill, and it keeps growing. Like when we first went, it was just, um, how many of you have been to Honeysuckle Hill, by the way? Well, the first time we went, it was just pig races, pigs racing around, a few animals to pet, a little corn maze, and uh, a pumpkin patch, right? Now they have attractions, Pumpkin blaster, you can stick a pumpkin in a cannon and fire it away. The corn maze is in the shape of Luke Bryan's head. I never knew I wanted to, needed to walk through his nostrils, but I got to do that uh, yesterday. They, they have um, lots of attractions, and one of the attractions when you first walk in that Luke was desperate to do yesterday, we had to do, and we got there, and they closed it down at 6 o'clock, and we didn't know why, and at 6 o'clock, we looked like 5.59, 6 o'clock, we thought, we haven't done that, so we rush over, because Luke had to do the house of fun. Now, here's just a, just a general question. Generally, when it says house of fun, what do you think it will include? Fun, right? That is not what the house of fun was. It, it, you walk in, they've got the nice mirrors. I was thinking like the mirrors and some clowns sitting around, which I mean, you know, people have their issues with that and different stuff. But this was a house where you walked in and you had to navigate through it and you ended up in multiple rooms where every wall looked the same and you could not tell which one had a door out. You walk through one and then there's another and you walk through one and there's another. And this house is about the size of this stage. And I think I went through 128 rooms. I don't know how they did it. In fact, we were walking through kind of a group, um, Susan and I and Luke and Maddie, which we about a third of the way and we're like, why in the world do we bring Maddie into this? And then Ellie was with us, uh, director of children's ministry, and we're walking through and you get into a room and we found out later they closed it at six to transform it. In fact, we got out and it was no longer the house of fun, it was the house of terror. All right. And so as we walked into one room, you could see where things were covered up, like that would jump out at you. And uh, Ellie, who is in the back at this point, just yells out, I am confessing. If something jumps at me, I'm going to punch it. I said, all right, fair game. You're now in the lead, all right? And so she, we walked through it. You get to the last part, and you have to, they have these air things blowing on the side, plastic. You have to squeeze through the thing. So for anybody that's claustrophobic, it's just terrifying. And I'm carrying Maddie through it, who's screaming and yelling. And we're just like, get through the thing, all right? I sat on the end of that, and you, we didn't do the night stuff at Honeysuckle Hill, but at Honeysuckle Hill, you know, they got the trail of terror and the zombie apocalypse paintball ride. Janetta and Landry were going to do that for their date night last night, but I think they decided otherwise. And you just think about, for this month, how people almost celebrate fear, right? 
I mean, on Netflix, October's a month where they put all kinds of horror movies on there. And TV shows, and the next week, they're going to have their Halloween episodes. And they're going to celebrate fear. And how that sometimes that line between adrenaline and pure terror is very fine. I was thinking about this week when I ran across a list online that listed the ten most common fears people have. And so here's what we're going to do today, all right? I'm going to, we're going to start by listing these fears. I'm going to give you the technical name, and I want you, with whoever's kind of around you, I started to, by the way, I started teaching a college class on Thursday night, so I started to come in and say, I need you to get out a sheet of paper and number to ten. We're going to take a quiz, but we're not going to do that, all right? But I want you to kind of gather, and I want you to see if you can figure this out. Now, a couple of ground rules, all right? Talk amongst yourselves, see if you can figure it out. In the first service, our 8.30 service, I did not think I was going to have to tell them to not Google the answer. And phones went up and Googling began. Unlike the second one, someone yelled the answer out pretty quickly. And I was like, Paul Sternberg, how did you do that? He said, Maggie Googled it. I said, well, that's kind of cheating, all right? And so no Googling, we're just going to see. So see if you can figure these out. So here's the first one. We got the first one. There we go. This is number 10 on the things people fear the most. Mysophobia. So turn to people around you, see if you can figure it out. Guess on what you got. By the way, if you're a clinical psychologist or something here, you're disqualified from this. All right, anybody got a guess on mysophobia? No guesses. Fear of what? Soap. No. Here it is. It's the fear of germs or dirt. How many of you are mysophobic and you didn't know it there? Right? Germs or dirt. All right? I'll tell you what does creep me out a little bit is every time they talk about this Ebola thing, they put that picture up. You know what I'm talking about? The picture of the virus under a microscope. That's a little freaky. All right? Mysophobia. Here's the number nine one. Number nine. Yeah, that. Terra Maneha Bonya. Terra Amenera Honophobia. Anybody got a guess there? Anybody got something they're thinking there? Yeah, that's a real common thing to be worried about. Are you scared? Marley, was that you? Are you scared of pterodactyls? Okay. I would be too. That's a, that is, if, if a pterodactyl shows up, that is a legitimate fear. This is, anybody got a guess? Fear of flying. Of course, it makes sense, right? Here's number eight. Nomophobia. It's not the fear of the Japanese imported picture, Hideo Nomo. All right, here it is. It's the fear of losing your cell phone. How many, how many of y'all down here, you got that? How many of you got that out there, all right? Like, people now are waking up in the middle of the night scared they've lost their cell phone. Or at least that's what somebody told me. All right. Trypanophobia. Trypanophobia. It's not the fear of tripping, although that's... Y'all have stopped talking with yourselves. Like, you don't, you've given up hope. You're done. It's over. All right, here it is. It's the fear of injections. How many of you got that? A few years ago, we went to get the kids the flu shot, you know, and I was responsible for taking Eli and Maddie. And the nurse looked at Eli and said, I bet your little sister would be so courageous 
if you would take the shot first and to show her there's nothing wrong with it. And Eli looked at the nurse and said, no, I think I'll let her go first. <laughs> That's my boy, right? All right. <laughs> Here's the next one. Astrophobia. It's not the fear of space, but you're thinking, right? Here it is. Fear of thunder and lightning, also known as all dogs and cats. All right, here's another one. Cynophobia. It's the fear of dogs. Anybody ever been scared of dogs? We got a couple, all right. We got a half, maybe. All right, agoraphobia. That sounds like a bad horror movie, right? Agoraphobia. What do you got? Fear of public places. You said that tentatively, is that? It's the fear of situations in when escape is difficult. For instance, being in a public place and not knowing how you're going to get out of it. All right? I'm just trying to really get some things to the surface here. All right? Here we go. Like the house of fun. Exactly. That was... Acrophobia. Fear of heights. People seem to know that one. How many of you are scared of heights? Not going to do like heights, right? A couple of weeks ago, we were at this Discovery Park of America. We were 120 stories up. And they had a glass floor you could stand on and look straight down. I thought it was really cool. All right. Here's number two on the list. Ophidiophobia. Bob Lloyd over here. Fear of snakes. Bob Lloyd. Sir, aren't you proud? He's an educator in our public school system. He knows the fear of snakes. How many of you are scared of snakes? All right. And here's the last one, I think. Let me see. Yep. Everybody knows this one. It's the fear of spiders, right? How many of you uh, don't like spiders? All right. Well, that's a large majority. All right. Let me tell you. Here at First Baptist and during these times, I want to be somebody that helps you out. And so number two on that list is the fear of snakes. And I was surfing the web this week and I found something to help you out if you ever find yourself with a particular snake. This particular snake is the anaconda that finds itself mostly in the Amazon of Brazil. But if you're in your backyard and one shows up, I've got 10 steps for you, all right? You might want to take these down. You never know when you need them, all right? Number one, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. It's comforting, right? Number two, lie flat on the ground, put your arms tight against your side, and your legs tightly together. Number three, tuck your chin in. Number four, this is where it gets important. The snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. Number six, listen, some of you may need this. It's important stuff here. You never know when an anaconda from Brazil is going to make its way. I mean, it's the stuff of horror movies into the backyards of Goodlettsville, Tennessee. Number six, after the snake has examined you, don't you like that phrase? snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet and always from the end. Allow the snake to swallow your feet and ankles. Do not panic. Number seven, 
the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This may take a long time. Number eight. Here's the, here's the step that we, we get our victory, all right? When the snake has reached your knees, that's fun, isn't it? Slow, it's amazing how many of you are living this out at the moment. Slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. Number nine, be sure you have a knife. Number ten, make sure it's sharp. So there you go. Ten simple steps, right? If you ever get attacked by an anaconda, you know what to do. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Here's what I want to tell you today, all right? Because there is a fine line between fear and adrenaline. And one of the things that I've discovered in my life is those moments in my life when I do not allow fear to rule me, but I step out in faith and do something that frightens me or worries me or scares me. When I take that step, oftentimes what I discover is the experience on the other end is one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I think back and I think, how many times have I allowed fear to prevent me from experiencing something amazing? In fact, I would guess that if you were in your mind to say, man, this was an unbelievable experience, a life transformational experience in my, in my days, in my journey, in my history. My guess is, when you think about that, if you were able to put yourself back at the beginning of it, there would have been fear and worry. What I want you to see today, we've been talking all month about this aha moment, this this lightning bolt moment, this light coming on moment. What I want you to see is from an example in Scripture of when this happens, when fear is not allowed to rule, but they step out in faith, that there's an experience that they get to enjoy that nobody else enjoyed. And I wonder in your life, what's God calling you to do? Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. It says immediately, immediately, right away. Now, just to give you an idea of what has happened prior to that, for him to say immediately, is that Jesus has just performed one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world. He has fed 5,000 people with just a few bread and fish. He just had a little bit and he turned it in enough to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And at the end of that, the people are amazed and they want to make him king and they gather around him and they can't do anything about it. And so Jesus tells his disciples, y'all get in the boat and go on to the other side. Immediately he made the disciples. The word made there means literally by force, push them. Y'all get in, y'all get in, y'all get in. Puts them in the boat, tells them to go the other side. And he dismisses the crowds. Now, that seems simple. I mean, at the end of the service today, I'm going to say you're dismissed and you're going to get up and walk out. But you're talking about 10,000 people gathered. And Jesus is personally saying, it's time. 
And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So he goes up on the mountain, he prays by himself. And when evening comes, he's there by himself. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So I want you to get the picture first of all. Now, some of you know the rest of this story, and so it's easy to jump ahead. But I I want you to put yourself in the place of the disciples. They're in the boat. Jesus says, y'all go ahead. I'll catch up. I'll find a ride. I'll get somebody to get to me later. And they get in the boat, and they start across this sea. And when they're this particular sea, the winds would shift constantly and would come against you. And sometimes, and in other places, it talks about a storm rose up. And so whatever it is, either strong winds or terrible waves, or a storm it is rough rough sea it is so rough in fact that we find out in just a minute that they're all still awake and they are in a moment of dire worry and concern i mean think about it for a minute the day they've just had it tells us in the chapter before that that jesus had been teaching all day and had been teaching for so long that the disciples come to him and say jesus they don't have anything to eat what are we going to do they don't have anything to eat I think that when the disciples ask Jesus that question, what they're really saying is, don't you think this would be a good time to tell them it's time to go? Like, we've had a great day. You've taught 10,000 people. It's been been a long day, Jesus. You need your rest. We need our rest. Don't you think it's time to go? Now, some of you will relate to that because that's how you were going to feel in a little over a month. You're going to be at the in-laws or you're going to have the in-laws with you. Over Thanksgiving and about Saturday or Sunday, it's been real, it's been good, but it's time to go. Disciples are worn out, they're exhausted, and Jesus puts them into the boat and they get in the boat and all they can think about, I can imagine, is we're going to get out on this boat away from the crowds, we're going to be in the middle of this, this sea, we're going to take turns, we're going to get some rest, we're going to be able to swap shifts, we'll be able to settle down, and they get out there and instead of being able to settle down and relax, I mean, some of you know what it's like to come home at just the end of a terribly long, sufferable day and you just want to relax and instead of being able to relax they get out there and the sea is rough and a storm is rising and they're up telling everything they can to keep the boat upright and going where it needs to go verse 25 says and in the fourth watch of the night he who's he jesus came to them walking on the sea okay now we all know that's Jesus, that's nice, that's a great story. Imagine you're the disciples. You're on the sea, it's getting tossed about, you can't see very well, it's not like you got street lights all over the place illuminating, and you look out and suddenly there is something coming towards you walking on the sea. What's your reaction? That is not your reaction because you didn't do anything. What's your reaction? You're yelling, you're screaming, it's a ghost! Somebody, what in the world? Look at what is that? Well, how do they react? Exactly like that. It says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, first of all, just allow that statement to wash over you for a minute. When they saw him walking on top of the sea, they were terrified. 
and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. That is, uh, let me give you a modern paraphrase of that. They screamed like little girls. All right. You know that piercing scream? They, how many of you know what, the, no, we don't have to have examples. Y'all know what that is, right? I have, I did not know that real well. I have two girls now. I've heard that piercing scream a few times. It's piercing. All right. And so they are, it's a ghost. What? Get under there. What are we doing? They're yelling. Twelve voices at once screaming. Now here's where I want you to see this aha moment, okay? But immediately, Jesus doesn't let them yell for long. It's just that initial thing. He says, stop, stop. (laughs) Take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. Now, what we see here in just a minute is one of the best examples of what it takes to have one of these aha moments in your own life, these life-altering moments, experiences with God. And the first thing is we see from the life of Peter is you have to recognize God's presence. Now, Peter, in his history, is not really good about stepping out and saying something right. In fact, he gets it wrong more than he gets it right. But in this case, he does exactly what he ought to do. Jesus is there, and Jesus is this walking vision and he says it's me and Peter's first thought you know what my first thought would be what in the world have we got ourselves into what this is the guy I'm what, what, what kind of what kind of man he's walk, he's walking on the sea you know what Jesus what Peter's first thought is I want to do that too right I want to do that he says basically Jesus can I come Anybody here have one of the can I come children? Like anytime you go anywhere, I won't go, I go. Ava is our I want to go child. Anytime I'm going anywhere, I want to go. In fact, sometimes she will make up things I need to go pick up at Publix. And she'll say, Dad, you go Publix, I go with you. All right? Now, you know why she likes to go to Publix? Because they give them free cookies. Did you all know they give free cookies to kids? All right? Kids is the operative word. Don't walk up there as a 45-year-old and say, I need my free cookie. All right? Peter's one of these that when an experience happens like that, he wants to be a part. And here's what Peter realized, or I don't know that he realized, but he was about to. Is that because he recognized that something different and special about the guy he has chosen to follow, who is walking towards him on the sea, Peter is about to experience something that nobody else is going to experience. He recognizes the presence of God And he says, if that's you, Jesus, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come on, let's go. And I love that. It's not really in this passage of Scripture, but I love the way that it says this. It says that Peter literally jumped out of the boat. And here it'll say he climbed down out of the boat or he got out of the boat because they're, they're kind of damping down what the original is. It says literally he jumped out of the boat. This is not like sticking your foot over the edge and kind of putting your foot in the water a little bit. This is I am going and I'm jumping. Now, the reason that this is so important is because um, in, in Mark's version of this story, it says that Jesus intended to pass them by. So if you read Mark's version of the story, what it almost sounds like when you read that is that Jesus was just going to let them struggle against the wind and he's just going to walk past them and go, hey guys, what you doing? And kept on going. 
But that's not what that phrase means. What that phrase means, it was used in the Old Testament. It said when Moses, God protected him against the cleft of the rock and God passed by Moses. When Elijah was needing something from God, he passed by Elijah. It's a vision or, or an idea in the, in the Bible when it talks about that language that they intended to show someone who Jesus was. And from our story in Scripture, the only one that recognized it was Peter. Having an aha moment first means recognizing God's presence. And then secondly, it means taking a risk when you do. What was the risk Peter took? He jumped out of the boat. Anybody want to suggest that to somebody when you're out on a wind-tossed sea with nobody else around except a guy walking on the water? Hey, just jump out of the boat. That's not what your physician's going to advise, right? That's, that's not what is going to be advised by your lawyer or your manager or anybody that really cares about you. They're not going to say, hey, just jump out of the boat. Yeah, that's a good time. Here's the thing. In Scripture, when God shows up and then he asks people to do something or people do something as a result, it almost always makes no sense at all. I mean, think of a story in Scripture where God tells somebody to do something and they go, oh, that makes perfect logical sense. Moses, we talked about a few weeks ago, go to the most powerful man in the universe right now, or this, the world, go to the most powerful man on the world, look at him and say, you need to let my people go. I've got a staff here. If you don't let him go, bad things are going to happen. Joseph, hey, listen, here's a great story for you. You're going to be thrown into slavery. You're going to be falsely accused. You're going to be falsely imprisoned, and you're going to be there for a long time. That's going to be exciting for you. Have you read some of the prophets? One of the prophets gets told to eat his food baked only over fires made with dung. You know what dung is, right? It's the biblical word that we use other words for. To show that that's what it's like for the Israelites right now. The, the, the people at Jericho, they're, they're walking around the walls and when they walk around the seventh time, what are they supposed to do? Blow a trumpet. Well, that's good military strategy. Gideon, hey, you got too many men in your army. Get all those men out of here. In the New Testament, Philip, you're preaching a revival and thousands are coming to know the Lord. I need you to leave right now because there's an appointment for you with one man out in the desert. It never makes sense. And any time you're going to be used by God in a mighty way, it's going to require risks that don't make sense, that don't look right on the budget balance sheet, that don't act right on your to-do list, that do not make sense in your five-year plan. Peter, I love this phrase. Before we get to him falling, I love verse 29. It says, he said, come. And Peter jumped out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. Can you imagine what those few seconds were like? Nobody's experienced it since. Nobody experienced it before. Just the two of them out on the water experiencing something for the first and only time. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Aho moments not only require taking risks, they also require focus. 
stabilizing focus. If you've heard this story before, you know this part, right? Jesus is out there. Peter starts walking to him. If you're walking on water and you're walking towards the only other person that has ever walked on water in the history of the world, wouldn't it be wise to keep focused on the person that you're walking to? But what happens to Peter? What does he start focusing on? The wind, everything around him, the storm, what's happening? And the thing that we have to realize is when we take risk for the Lord, when we start to do things that um, are difficult or that God calls us to do, it doesn't mean that everything's going to go well right away. In fact, sometimes taking a step out for the Lord means that things get worse. In fact, there are some commentators that think once he got out there, the reason he noticed the wind is because a gust of wind came at that moment or the, the wind got up stronger than it had been. Something happened all alone, uh, all of a sudden, right when he steps out of the boat, it gets worse. Sometimes for us, it's easy when we step out of the boat and it gets worse. The easy thing is to jump back in and say, whoo, I tried it. I can't do that. And yet over and over in Scripture, it's only when people persevere in the midst of difficulty, even after they step out of the boat, that God accomplishes amazing things through them. I read this week a, a quote from a guy named Greg Lavoie who said that Jesus promised those who would follow him only three things, that they would be absurdly happy entirely fearless, and always in trouble. People hated me. They're going to hate you. It's part of what happens in our lives when we follow Jesus. We suddenly discover that it's not the easiest life around, but it's the most fulfilling. In fact, over in the book of Hebrews, our youth have been walking through Hebrews on Wednesday night, and towards the end of that book in chapter 11, it talks about all these people that had real difficulty in following the Lord. And at chapter 11, he's talking about all these great heroes of our faith. And he says at the end of that, what more? I can't even talk about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel or the prophets who through faith. And then he gives all these accomplishments, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what they were promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flame, escaped the edge of the sword. Weakness was turned into strength, became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Unbelievable stuff. But then it says, but they were also tortured. They refused to be released. They faced jeers, flogging. They were chained, put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. You see, sometimes we think that just because we start following Jesus, everything will smooth out. And for Peter, it got worse. And we see it here that when he took his focus off of the one who had called him out to the water, everything starts to fall. Jesus lifts down and picks him up, pulls him back, says to him, and there's some discussion about whether this is a stern rebuke or just kind of a, like you would say to yourself, I can't believe you didn't trust me. Why do you have so little faith, Peter? And says they get back in the boat, and immediately upon getting back in the boat, what happens to the storm? It's gone. And they are awed by what they see. These aha moments that require risk and stabilizing focus result in experiencing God. Now, I want you to think about that statement for a minute because we get the sense from this story 
that they worshipped him in a new way and understood his power in a more real way. They had just seen him in the last 24 hours feed 5,000 plus. They had witnessed many miracles, but for some reason at this moment they got a new vision of who he was and they fell on their face and they experienced him for who he is. And here's why I think they did that. God always gives us an experience with him before he takes us to an important decision in our lives. Let me rephrase that. God always gives us the opportunity to experience him before we encounter a major decision in our life. If you've got your Bibles open in Matthew, just turn a couple of books over to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we have the same stories here. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus walks on water. Now, it's much shorter in chapter 6, and that's why we use the Matthew version of that, because chapter 6 just gives a short version of it. But when you get to verse 22, we see the next day. And I'm not going to read all of this because it's a lengthy chapter. But what happens on the next day is the crowd wakes up. They get up. They want to find Jesus. They are looking for him. Well, there are many reasons they're looking for him. They want to hear his teaching. They also want to be fed. They think, great, we've got to find Jesus. Well, they get up. They go to down to the seashore, and the one boat the disciples took is gone, and nothing else is gone, and Jesus is not there. And so they wonder, really, how in the world did he get there? Where did he go? What is happening to him? How did they get? Because somebody says he's on the other side. And so they encounter him on the other side. They say, we we just got a question for you. It's one of those things like you you are blowing our mind. How did you do this? How did you get over here? Did you like, I mean, they weren't into Star Trek back then, obviously. Like, did you just like beam me up, disciples? Let's go. How did you get here? And Jesus says to him, you don't really care about that. All you want is some food. That's all you care about. And Jesus begins what they call in farming terms sometimes to thin the herd. He thinks, I got too many people following me. And so he starts to do some tough teaching. In fact, he says to him, listen, you want bread. I am the bread of life. You'll never hunger again if you feast on me. In fact, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, those of us that have grown up in church, we immediately think, oh, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. It's a great picture. Those people had never heard of the Lord's Supper because it hadn't happened yet. They're thinking Jesus is saying, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're thinking, that ain't cool. In fact, over in chapter 60, it says, they look at him and say, this is hard teaching. Who can believe this? And in chapter 6, verse 66, it says, many of them deserted him and would not follow him anymore. They turned back from him. Now, this is after he fed the 5,000, after he walked on water. The next day, he gets them all kind of out there and he turns to his 12 and he looks at them and he says to them, do you want to leave also? Are you want to leave? And look who speaks up. Verse 68, Peter, who talked? Peter answered him and he says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Quick question, not a hard answer. What was the most recent episode they had seen that proved to them that he was the Holy One of God? He walked on the water. And Jesus knew this day was coming. He knew the day was coming when he was going to effectively ask them, are you all in? From this moment forward, he never really asked a question like this. This is Jesus at the beginning of his ministry saying, it's about to get 
crazy. There are going to be things asked of you you are not understanding right now. I need to know, are you with me or are you wanting to leave? And Peter says, based on what I saw in the last 24 hours, you fed 5,000 people, you walked on water, you called me to walk on water, you got in the boat and the storm stopped. Based on what I have seen, I know you are the Holy One of God. I have no other choice but to follow you. And when God calls you to make a major decision or commitment in your life, the only thing you have to go on is who he is and what he has done for you already. And Peter says, we're here. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you did something risky for the Lord? Now, not reckless. Peter stepping out of the boat might sound reckless. It's not reckless. Jesus is standing there and says to come. If Jesus says to come, it's not reckless. It may be risky, but it's not reckless. But when's the last time you did something, attempted something, tried something that required the Lord to show up or it doesn't get accomplished? When's the last time you trusted him with something? That you couldn't do on your own. And yet you went forward anyways. Let's pray together.